Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or your family ever seen a spook, spectre or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Get in touch with me and tell me all about it. And you could feature in this year's big Nightmare Before Christmas special. That's right. This year's big Christmas episode will feature ghost stories from listeners just like you. As Christmas time is the perfect time for scary stories. The scarier, the better. If you've got a real-life ghost story, send me an email at rob at how-haunted.com or send me a message on Twitter or Instagram. On both of those, I'm at howhauntedpod. On Instagram, you could even send me a voice message that'll play on the show if you wish. I speak to people every day who say, I've got a ghost story, or I saw a ghost. If that's you, then why not share your ghost story with me and the other How Haunted listeners? And let's make this Christmas a frightfully good one. I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of some of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 61, with the 5th of November coming this weekend, that's if you're listening to this on the day that it's released, we are going to look at the short life of a man who has become immortalised in British history for a failed plot in 1605. A plot which has led to the annual celebration of Bonfire Night or Guy Fawkes Night. We will look at the life of Guy Fawkes and those places that he has sent haunt and death over 400 years since he was executed. This week, with the unmistakable smell of bonfires and spent fireworks hanging in the air, let us explore the many haunts of the gunpowder plotter Guy Fawkes. Listener discretion is advised as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, Bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. A little after midnight on the 5th of November 1605, a man was caught in the darkness of a basement beneath the Houses of Parliament. When he was asked who he was, he lied. He gave his name as John Johnson, adding that he was a 36-year-old Catholic from Netherdale in Yorkshire, and his parents were Thomas Jackson and Edith Jackson. The search of the area found an enormous quantity of gunpowder hidden in that basement, certainly enough to destroy the Houses of Parliament directly above them. However, the plot was not yet known, so when he was asked as to why he had such a great quantity of gunpowder, he brazenly answered, to blow you Scotch beggars back to your native mountains. Despite having given a false name, he openly admitted that his intention had been to blow up the House of Lords and expressed huge regret at his failure to do so. The man was Guy Fawkes, or Guido as he preferred to be known, and this was the foiling of the gunpowder plot. But who was Guy Fawkes, and what led to him being discovered beneath the Houses of Parliament with a huge amount of gunpowder and a match? Guy Fawkes was born in York in 1570, in the shadow of York Minster, His exact birthplace has been debated, as confusingly there is a plaque at 32 Stonegate which says, Hereabouts lived the parents of Guy Fawkes, suggesting that he was born there. But then the Guy Fawkes Inn, at 25 High Petergate, just around the corner, has a sticker in the window designed to look like a blue plaque, which says that Guy Fawkes was born there. Historians largely agree that the most likely location is the Guy Fawkes Inn, which is a building that we'll visit later. Guy's father was a Protestant following the Church of England, but Guy's mother's family were recusant Catholics. This meant that they remained loyal to the Catholic Church, and they refused to attend Church of England services, which had been made mandatory during the English Reformation. Guy's grandmother, born Ellen Harrington, was the daughter of a prominent merchant who served as Lord Mayor of York in 1536. The date of Guy Fawkes' birth is unknown, but he was baptised in the church of St Michael the Belfry, directly opposite Yorkminster on the 16th of April, and at the time it was traditional for a new baby to be baptised three days after their birth. 
So historians largely agree that his date of birth was probably the 13th of April 1570. Guy's older sister Anne had been born in 1568, but she died at the age of just seven weeks. He would however gain two younger sisters, Anne, born in 1572, and Elizabeth, born in 1575. When young Guy was just eight years old, his father died. His mother would remarry several years later, her new husband, a devout Catholic. It's unclear if Guy's strong Catholic beliefs came from his mother and stepfather, or from his time attendance in Peter's school, or a combination of the two. The governor of the school had spent 20 years in prison for recusancy, and its headmaster, John Pullen, came from a family of noted Yorkshire recusants. Fawkes's fellow students included John Wright and his brother Christopher, who were both later involved with Fawkes in the gunpowder plot, and Oswald Tessimond, Edward Oldcorn and Robert Middleton, who all became priests. The latter was executed in 1601. He left school and worked in the service of Anthony Brown, first Viscount Montague, and then Anthony Maria Brown, second Viscount Montague, who was just 18 years old himself. In October 1591, at the age of 21, Guy Fawkes sold the estate in Clifton in York that he had inherited from his father, and he travelled overseas to fight for Catholic Spain against the new Dutch Republic, who were Protestant Dutch reformers, in the Eighty Years' War. It was here that he adopted the name Guido, the Italian version of Guy, in order to sound more Catholic. By now Fawkes had grown into a good-looking man, tall and strong, with thick reddish-brown hair, an impressive moustache and a beard. Fawkes became an alferez, or junior officer. He fought well at the Siege of Calais in 1596, and by 1603 he had been recommended for a captaincy. In early 1604 he had a fateful encounter when he met Englishman Thomas Winter in Spain. Winter was scouting around for allies to join a group of Catholic conspirators based in England, led by his cousin Robert Catesby. Their plan was to assassinate the Protestant King James I, and replace him with his daughter, who was third in the line of succession, Princess Elizabeth. The reason for their wish to do so was that James I had been crowned King of England the previous year. His predecessor, Queen Elizabeth I, had repressed Catholicism in England. Many Catholics hoped that James, being the son of the late Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, would be more sympathetic to their plight. He wasn't, and he continued to carry out persecutions against them. Winter himself hadn't originally bought into a plan originally formulated by Catesby and John Wright, but he was convinced by his cousin to head overseas in order to find further support. Winter met the Constable of Castile, Hugh Owen, who was an exiled Welsh spy, and Sir William Stanley. The pair told Winter that he would receive no support from Spain, despite it being a Catholic country. However, they introduced him to Guy Fawkes, who they knew would be interested. Winter and Fawkes returned to England in April of 1604. The first meeting of the Central Conspirators took place on Sunday the 20th of May 1604, at an inn called the Duck and Drake, in the fashionable Strand District of London. The five conspirators were Robert Catesby, Thomas Winter, John Wright, who Fawkes had gone to school with, Thomas Percy, who was the brother-in-law of John Wright having married Martha Wright in 1591, and who had met Catesby in June 1703 and agreed to fund the plot, and then Guy Fawkes himself. They discussed their plan. They would assassinate the king by blowing up the Houses of Parliament with gunpowder. The destruction of Parliament was to coincide with a Catholic uprising in the Midlands, which would see the plotters kidnap James I's nine-year-old daughter Princess Elizabeth from Coombe Abbey, near Coventry, and use her as their puppet monarch. The following month Thomas Percy gained access to a house in London that belonged to John Wynyard, keeper of the King's wardrobe. Fawkes was installed in the house as a caretaker, and began using the pseudonym John Johnson, who was a servant to Percy. The conspirators were working towards a date of Parliament opening in February 1605. However, on the 24th of December 1604, it was announced that due to the ever-present threat of the plague, which was the cause of death for 17% of Londoners who lost their life in 1604, and almost 7% in 1605. This saw the opening of Parliament delayed until the 3rd of October. On the 28th of July 1605, this was delayed again until Tuesday the 5th of November. 
Some modern-day accounts of what happened next often claim that the conspirators began to dig a tunnel from beneath this house to Parliament. This appears to be unlikely, as there's no evidence whatsoever to back this claim up. But what we do know is that they were made aware of a woman cleaning out an undercroft which was situated directly beneath the Houses of Parliament. This was perfect for their needs, and with the property also being owned by John Winyard, they purchased the lease on the 25th of March 1605. During the month of July 1605, 36 barrels of gunpowder were brought in and hidden, ready for their plan to be put into action. During the summer of 1605, Guy Fawkes headed back overseas. While in Spain, he made Hugh Owen aware of the plan, and on this trip Fawkes came to the attention of a man called Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury, who had spies all over Europe. However, the detail of the plot was not part of the information that he received. When Fawkes returned to England, Winter and he discovered that the hidden gunpowder had decayed, so 36 more barrels of gunpowder were hidden in the undercroft. The date was set. They would blow up Parliament during its state opening on the 5th of November, when James I, the Queen and his heir would also be present, and they would all be killed. The plotters would then plan to crown Princess Elizabeth. The conspirators had grown by now from the Central Five to Thirteen, along with Fawkes, John Wright, Thomas Percy, Robert Catesby and Thomas Winter. They'd been joined in their plot by Winter's brother Robert, their brother-in-law John Grant, Catesby's second cousin Francis Tresham, his servant Tom Bates, John Wright's brother and Fawkes' childhood classmate Christopher, Sir Everard Digby, Ambrose Rookwood and Robert Keyes. During a series of meetings across the month of October, it was decided that Guy Fawkes, who had knowledge of gunpowder from his time in the military, would be the one to strike that fateful match and light the fuse. At the same time, a revolt in the Midlands would help to ensure the capture of Princess Elizabeth. With Parliament destroyed and the King dead, Fawkes would make his escape to the continent, where he would explain to the Catholic powers of his holy duty to kill the King. Under the cover of darkness on the 4th of November, he got into position in the Undercroft, armed with a slow match and a watch given to him by Thomas Percy, because he should know how the time went away. Just after midnight he stepped outside and he was arrested. Inside the barrels of gunpowder were found hidden under piles of firewood and coal. This is where Fawkes gave the alias of John Johnson and confessed to planning to blow up the Houses of Parliament. On the 4th of November 1605, Sir Everard Digby had installed himself at the Red Lion Inn in Dunchurch in Warwickshire, from where the strike on Princess Elizabeth at Coombe Abbey would be launched. When news reached Catesby that Guy Fawkes had been caught red-handed in the cellars at Westminster in the small hours of the 5th of November, he refused to admit defeat, and he rode at Dunchurch, where he successfully rallied Digby's flag and spirits. However, most of the local Catholic gentry that Digby had assembled, knowing that the plot had failed, fled. With a meagre force numbering around 50, Catesby plundered Warwick Castle for fresh horses on the night of the 5th, and he spent the following two days riding frantically across Warwickshire and Worcestershire, vainly trying to incite rebellion. At around 11 in the morning on the 8th of November, the High Sheriff of Worcestershire, Sir Richard Walsh, caught up with Catesby's dwindling band at Holbeach House in South Staffordshire. The house was surrounded by 200 of the Sheriff's men. Catesby and the other plotters there with him resigned to take a last stand and fight to the death. Despite knowing that they were hopefully outnumbered, and they would be almost certainly killed or captured. Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy stood shoulder to shoulder outside the door of the house, swords in hand, and both men were then shot by a sniper hiding behind a tree. It's been written, although this may be more of a romantic notion added in later years than actual fact, that before breathing his last, the wounded Robert Catesby crawled into the house, grabbed a picture of the Virgin Mary, kissed it, and died. John and Christopher Wright joined Catesby and Percy amongst the dead that bloody morning. But this would prove to be a blessing, considering what their fellow gunpowder plotters were to endure. The leader of the plot, Robert Catesby's head, was later mounted on an iron spike on London Bridge. The gunpowder plot would have been successful. The plan could and should have played out exactly as they planned it. At least the blowing up Parliament and killing the King part anyway. But for an anonymous letter sent by one of the conspirators, 
concerned about a fellow Catholic who they knew would be at the opening of Parliament. On the evening of the 26th of October, Lord Monteagle received a letter warning him from attending Parliament. The section of it read, For though there may be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. It's never been established which of the 13 sent the letter, but it's believed it was most likely Francis Tresham, as he was only brought into the plot in October, found the idea of blowing a Parliament repugnant, and Lord Monteagle was his brother-in-law. The conspirators were actually made aware that this letter had been received, as Lord Monteagle's servant told Thomas Winter, who then wished to stop the plot altogether. But after Fawkes checked the undercroft on the 30th of October, and found nothing to have been disturbed, he agreed that it looked like it may have been passed off as a hoax, and decided to press ahead as planned. What they didn't know though, is that King James I had been shown the letter, and he ordered Sir Thomas Nivett to conduct a search of the nooks, crannies and spaces beneath Parliament, which he did in the early hours of the 5th of November, when he caught Guy Fawkes red-handed. Upon hearing of John Johnson's brazenness at the time of his arrest, King James actually admired Mr Johnson for his steadfast manner, and described him as having a Roman resolution. Despite this, King James ordered on the 6th of November that John Johnson be tortured, to reveal the names of his co-conspirators. He directed that the torture be light at first, referring to the use of manacles, but more severe, authorising the use of the rack if necessary. The rack was a horrible device, designed to inflict excruciating pain and cause permanent damage, as a prisoner's limbs were pulled in opposing directions until the joints were dislocated or separated. Fawkes was transferred to the Tower of London for his torture. The King composed a list of questions to be put to Johnson, such as, as to what he is, for I can never yet hear of any man that knows him, where and when he learned to speak French, and, if he was a papist, what brought him up in it. The room in which Fawkes was interrogated subsequently became known as the Guy Fawkes Room. Lieutenant of the Tower Sir William Wad oversaw the torture and obtained Fawkes's confession. He searched his prisoner and he found a letter addressed to Guy Fawkes. To Ward's surprise, Johnson remained silent, revealing nothing about the plot or its authors. On the night of the 6th of November he spoke with Ward, who reported, He told us that since he undertook this action, he did every day pray to God, he might perform that which might be for the advancement of his Catholic faith and saving his own soul. According to Ward, Fawkes managed to rest through the night, despite being warned that he would be interrogated until I had gotten the inward secrets of his thoughts and all his complices. His composure was broken at some point during the following day. During the second full day of torture on the 7th of November, Guy Fawkes eventually revealed his true identity, and he told his interrogators that there were five people involved in the plot to kill the king. During yet another day of agonising torture on the 8th, he began to reveal their names, and he told how they intended to place Princess Elizabeth on the throne. His third confession on the 9th of November implicated Francis Tresham. Following the Rodolphi plot of 1571, prisoners were made to dictate their confessions before copying and signing them, if they still could. Although it is uncertain if he was subjected to the horrors of the rack, Fawkes' signature is little more than a scroll, and it bears testament to the suffering he endured at the hands of his interrogators. It's a haunting image, that you can see for yourself over on the Instagram at How Haunted Pod. Even though Guy Fawkes had confessed, his pain and suffering was far from over. The trial of the eight remaining plotters, Guy Fawkes, Thomas Bates, Thomas and Robert Winter, Robert Keyes, John Grant, Ambrose Rookwood and Sir Everard Digby, began on Monday the 27th of January 1606. Francis Tresham had died while in prison in the Tower of London, awaiting trial on the 23rd of December. His cause of death was natural causes, despite him only being aged 37 or 38. The eight accused men were transported from the Tower of London to Westminster Hall by barge. At Westminster Hall they were displayed on a purpose-built scaffold. The King and his close family, watching in secret, were among the spectators as the Lord's Commissioners read out the list of charges. Fawkes was identified as Guido Fawkes, otherwise called 
Guido Johnson. He pleaded not guilty. The jury found all eight defendants guilty, and the Lord Chief Justice, Sir John Popham, pronounced all eight guilty of high treason. The punishment for which was to be hanged, drawn and quartered. The Attorney General Sir Edward Coke told the court that each of the condemned would be drawn backwards to his death by a horse, his head near the ground. They were to be put to death, halfway between heaven and earth as unworthy of both. Their genitals would be cut off and burnt before their very eyes, and their bowels and hearts would be removed. They would then be decapitated and the dismembered parts of their body displayed, so they might become prey for the fowls of the air. Robert Winter, Sir Everard Digby, John Grant and Thomas Bates were executed on the 30th of January 1606. The following day, the 31st of January, Guy Fawkes, Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rookwood and Robert Keyes were dragged from the tower on wattled hurdles to the old palace yard at Westminster, ironically opposite the building they had attempted to destroy. This was a public event, and it was sure to be a grand family day out for the enormous crowd that gathered. Fawkes was the last of the group to be executed, so he had to watch on as his co-conspirators, each of which he had given up, went through the excruciating process of being hanged, drawn, then quartered. All twelve of his fellow plotters now dead, it was Guy Fawkes' turn to stand on the scaffold. He asked for forgiveness of the king and state while keeping up his crosses and idle ceremonies, these being his Catholic practices. Fawkes could barely move, such was the damage that the torture had left on his body, so he was helped up the ladder to the noose. What happened next has been debated for over 400 years, but one of two things occurred. Either he mustered the strength to jump from the ladder when the noose was around his neck, or he purposefully climbed too high up the ladder so that the rope was set incorrectly. Either way, the result was that his neck broke immediately, giving him a much swifter death than had been planned for him. His body was cut into four quarters, and it was put on display as a warning to anyone else considering conspiring against the king. As news spread across the capital of the foil plot and the king being alive and well, Londoners began lighting bonfires in celebration. The following year, the observance of 5th of November Act was passed, enforcing an annual public day of thanksgiving for the plot's failure. It became known as Gunpowder Treason Day. By the end of the 17th century, effigies of the Pope were being burned atop the bonfire, in keeping with the anti-Catholic sentiment of the time. During the 18th century, the celebrations surrounding the 5th of November pretty much disappeared, but they came back with a bang in the early 19th century when it was Guy Fawkes now being burnt on the bonfire, as burning the Pope was not seen as acceptable, as times and the opinions towards Catholicism had changed. What had also changed was the name of this day, which is now most commonly known as Guy Fawkes Day, as opposed to Gunpowder Treason Day. The commemoration had begun to lose its religious and political undertones, and in 1858 the observance of the 5th of November Act was repealed. With the day having lost its original focus, it gained a new one, as children walked the street with their own homemade effigies of Guy Fawkes, asking, penny for the guy, to any passers-by. This was still a common sight when I was growing up in Newcastle in the 1980s and early 1990s. I can even remember doing it myself. Kids going door to door begging penny for the guy, whilst pushing a wheelbarrow or an old pram with a homemade guy in it, which was usually made up of their old clothes which no longer fit, or in many instances their current school uniform, and their parents simply had no idea about it becoming the clothing of guy. These would be stuffed with newspaper and turned into something vaguely person-shaped, there would be an old football, or a Halloween mask wrapped around something head-shaped as Guy's head. After dark, Guy would be set ablaze on top of the bonfire. As the kids looked on in wonder, watching Guy being consumed by the fire, the flames dancing and spitting, while wolfing down the sweets that they bought with all of the pennies they'd raised from their kindly neighbours. Today, each year on the 5th of November, people across the UK continue to celebrate Bonfire Night, as it's now most commonly known with fireworks, bonfires, sparklers and toffee apples. But its popularity has certainly waned over my lifetime, and Penny for the Guy died out decades ago. The decline has coincided with the increase in the popularity of Halloween, and much more of a focus being put on the health and safety aspects of the celebrations, 
but it's still a hugely popular day, with organised firework displays all over the UK, accompanied by a chorus of oohs and ahs, as the gathered onlookers marvel at the powerful bangs and the colourful explosions that they produce. As for the legend of Guy Fawkes, he is typically the only one of the 13 conspirators remembered, despite not even being the leader of the plot. The reason being is that he was the one caught beneath the Houses of Parliament surrounded by gunpowder. He was the one who would have struck that match and blowed that building above to rubble and killed every single person present. He was the one tortured, and he was the last one to be killed. Strangely, his reputation has seen a shift in recent years, from traitor to revolutionary hero, and his likeness is now used to protest against tyranny. This is largely due to Alan Moore's 1980s graphic novel V for Vendetta and the movie adaptation released in 2005, in which the anarchist V, who wears a mask in Guy Fawkes' likeness, attempts to destroy an authoritarian government in a dystopian future United Kingdom, with the aim of starting a revolution with a series of terrorist acts. The movie, especially V's memorable Guy Fawkes mask, has had a massive cultural impact. Across the globe, the mask has come to represent revolution and the fight against fascism. Anonymous, an online group associated with computer hacking, popularised the mask as a symbol for rebellion by wearing it as they protest against governments. Over 400 years ago, Guy Fawkes lost his life at the age of 35, and ever since locations across England are believed to be the haunt of the gunpowder plotter. Some of these buildings were pivotal during the short life of Fawkes, including a couple that we've looked at on previous episodes of How Haunted, and a number of others where the connection to Guy Fawkes seems a little less clear. Let's start at the beginning, the building in which Guy Fawkes was most likely born, the Guy Fawkes Inn on High Petergate in York. York is a city full of historic pubs and inns, but the Guy Fawkes Inn might just be the most historically significant of all of them, due to its association with the man it is now named for. As this city centre pub right next to York Minster was not only where Guy Fawkes lived during his formative years, but also where he was born. Well, kind of. The Guy Fawkes Inn is an early Georgian terrace, and it was built hundreds of years after Fawkes had been executed. However, there's an older cottage behind, and it's in this cottage where Guy Fawkes was born. This cottage is now part of the inn, and therefore the Guy Fawkes Inn has a blue sticker in its window, made to look like a blue heritage plaque, which says, Guy Fawkes, Gunpowder Plot Conspirator, born here 1570, hung, drawn and quartered in the City of London, 31st of January 1606. The Guy Fawkes Inn is a delightful trip back in time, with original fireplaces, the original timber staircase, ornate gas lamps, and reminders throughout about the man the inn is named for, and the gunpowder plot. There are 13 ensuite bedrooms, and instead of room numbers, they are each named for one of the 13 conspirators. Interestingly, any property once owned or affiliated with Guy Fawkes does not participate in Bonfire Night, including the inn itself and its former school St Peter's, who have previously gone on record saying, we don't burn effigies of old boys. The inn is the haunt of several ghosts, including Guy Fawkes himself. He is seen in the upper reaches of the building, a tall man with a moustache, beard, dark cloak, and a wide-brimmed hat. A ghost tour guide tells a story that he was stood outside of the Guy Fawkes Inn on one of his walks, regaling the crowd with tales of the inn, and of Guy Fawkes himself. At this point he felt a hand grasp his shoulder. He looked to see who had grabbed him, but there was no one there. He took this to be a sign that this was Guy Fawkes himself, making the tour guide aware that he knew that he was being talked about. Just last month I was lucky enough to speak with Morgan Conlon of the Guy Fawkes Inn. I was told. We've had one or two guests who stayed in the Guy Fawkes room in the past, that's room 12 at the back of the hotel, who have claimed to see him during their stay. Although I'm not sure if that's because they knew it was the room that he was born and lived in when he was young. Morgan went on to say, The only really unexplainable experience that I've seen from that room personally was when I was checking somebody out. They mentioned that they couldn't sleep because somebody was pacing the floor above them all night, and they mentioned that their light rattled a few times. When I checked to see if anyone was still in the room above them that morning on the reservation system, it was down as empty. 
so not only was there no one staying in the room the night before, but there was no reason any of the housekeepers would have been in there that morning either. One particular area we seem to get a lot of stories about is the main building on the second floor. On several occasions in the past we've had guests complaining about noisy children running up and down the stairs in the early hours of the morning, anywhere between 1 and 3 in the morning. However, we rarely have children stay at the hotel, as we don't have any family rooms. On one occasion we had to show a couple the CCTV footage of the staircase outside their room, because they were so adamant that there were children playing on the stairs in the night. But upon viewing the footage, they saw there was nothing there. The room that gets the most stories however is the Belfry Suite at the top of the hotel. It spans the length of the building, so anyone who stays has the entire top floor all to themselves. It's the only room that we've had stories of objects actually moving in the night, and in some cases flying towards guests while they're sleeping or sitting in that room. A few years ago a couple left in the middle of the night because they were so scared by what had happened to them. They didn't give a lot of detail, but one of them had a cut on their face where the zip of their coat had hit them when it had flown across the room. They didn't ask for a refund, they just left as quickly as they could. The housekeepers won't clean that room alone, only in pairs, as they have all at some point or another had experiences with their hair or their clothing being pulled, and upon one checkout, a guest who had quite a sleepless night up there tipped them quite a substantial amount due to the fact that they had to go up there every day. Morgan finished by saying that if anybody listening is brave enough to spend a night at the Guy Fawkes Inn, use the best book direct code when booking online. It'll get you the best rates, perfect for the spooky time of the year. If you're heading to York and you're feeling particularly brave, I'll pop that code into the podcast episode description for you. Staying in the city of Guy Fawkes' birth, we now find ourselves at the York Guildhall. Situated on the River Ouse, tucked away behind York Mansion House, which itself is a grand house dating back to 1725, and the official residence of the Mayor of York. And of course, another building not without its ghost stories and secrets. But our focus here is the Guildhall. Work commenced on the building of the Guildhall in 1445, on the site of an earlier common hall which dates from at least 1256, as it appears in a charter of that year. The Guildhall would act as a meeting place for the Guilds of York, specifically the Guild of St Christopher and St George, and the Corporation, the cost being divided equally between them. These Guilds would ensure and oversee the quality of workmanship of tradesmen in the city, and control trade within York. Records from the construction exist to this day, including accounts which record that the workmen were given a bonus of three pence to celebrate the laying of the foundation stone. The whole site was taken over by the City Corporation in 1549, and the first ever council meeting at the Guildhall was held in May of the same year. Council meetings are still held on the site to this very day in the Victorian Council Chamber that was added in 1891. The building wasn't just used for council meetings, it was used for all manner of official purposes, such as host and royal visitors, including King Richard III, who was entertained there in 1483, and Prince Albert, the Prince Consort of Queen Victoria, who was a guest of honour at a royal banquet in October of 1850. It was also used as a court of justice. The most famous trial being that of Margaret Clitheroe in 1586. She was sentenced to death, she was sentenced to death here, for the crime of harbouring Catholic priests and practising Catholicism. You can hear all about the grisly fate of Margaret Clitheroe, as well as finding out in York where her ghost is said to remain, by listening to last year's Halloween special, which was a ghost walk of York. In 1647 at the height of the Civil War, the Parliamentarians agreed to pay a ransom of £200,000 to the Scots, in exchange for handing over Charles I, the then King of England, Scotland and Ireland. This enormous sum was counted out right here in this very building, Charles I would be executed within two years of this deal being struck anyway, as in January of 1649 he was beheaded in Whitehall, London for high treason. During the Second World War, a German bombing raid in 1942 landed a direct hit on the Guildhall and all but destroyed the building. Most of the stone shell of the building was gone, but some of the internal rooms survived, and it was around this that the Guildhall was rebuilt, staying true to the original 15th century structure. This rebuild took 18 years, and the Guildhall was reopened on the 21st of June 1960. It has undergone a programme of restoration in more recent years, with work commencing in 2017 and being completed in April 2022. 
Reports place the ghost of Guy Fawkes here in the Guildhall, and people actually report seeing the full spectral apparition of a phantom said to be that of the gunpowder plotter. His connection to the building is unclear, and there's no historical records which place him at the Guildhall. But given that he lived in York, it's not to say that he couldn't have been here at some time. Interestingly, these reports began during World War I and didn't last beyond the end of the conflict. There are many more ghosts at Rome York Guildhall, and you can find out all about them by revisiting episode 21. The school that Guy Fawkes attended, St Peter's, is another historic building that he is said to have returned to in death. The school was founded in the year 627 AD, originally being housed at York Minster. This makes it the third oldest school in the world, although this has long been viewed with scepticism by historians. The school's founder, Paulinius, was a Roman missionary and the first Bishop of York, a member of the Gregorian mission sent by Pope Gregory I to Christianise the Anglo-Saxons from their native Anglo-Saxon paganism. Paulinius arrived in England by 604. The school moved in 1557 to new buildings, and Guy Fawkes attended St Peter's from 1575. He attended with fellow plotters John and Christopher Wright. Today students talk of the ghost of Guy Fawkes stalking the school's hall and corridors. However, in 1664, 50 years after Guy Fawkes' execution, the St Peter's school that he will have attended was all but destroyed in the Siege of York and the English Civil War. In 1844, the school moved to its current site. So the rumoured haunting of Guy Fawkes seems likely to be little more than schoolyard legend. The ghost of Guy Fawkes is also said to remain at the place that he was imprisoned and tortured during his arrest on that fateful night. The Tower of London. The main period of the tower's use as a prison was the 16th and 17th centuries, when those imprisoned within those stone walls were some true celebrities of the day, such as Elizabeth I, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Guy Fawkes. The castle has witnessed true horror, with torture and executions galore. The most famous name to be tortured at the Tower of London is without doubt, the gunpowder plotter Guy Fawkes. Unsurprisingly, considering the pain, suffering and anguish that Guy Fawkes experienced here, it is said that you can hear Fawkes screaming and crying from the council chamber in the White Tower. He is just one of many spectres said to be lurking at the Tower of London. Revisit episode 4 to experience the true horror of this London landmark. We're heading to Oxford next and specifically to Oxford University's Ashmolean Museum, where in the story gallery on the lower ground floor, a dilapidated old iron lantern standing 34.5cm high, or 13.5 inches, is on display. This is the type which would have been used in the early 17th century. You can see photographs of it over on the Instagram at HowHauntedPod. This isn't any lantern, and as you've probably guessed, this was the very lantern that Guy Fawkes was carrying when he was arrested beneath the Houses of Parliament. In 1641, the lantern was given to the University of Oxford by Robert Haywood. Robert was a proctor of the university, and his brother Peter had accompanied Sir Thomas Nivett, keeper of Whitehall Palace, in his fateful search in the early hours of the 5th of November 1605. Peter Haywood himself took this lantern from Guy Fawkes. In an unsubstantiated version of events, almost certainly embellished. Peter fought and struggled with Fawkes as the gunpowder plotter desperately tried to strike his match and ignite the gunpowder. In 1640, Peter was mortally wounded in an assassination, at which point the lantern was passed to his brother, and then Robert donated it to the university. It was initially on display in the Bodleian Library's picture gallery, but it was moved to the Ashmolean Museum in 1887. If you're in Oxford, you can go and see the lantern for yourself as the museum is free to enter and open all year round. It's said that each year in the early hours of the 5th of November, the lantern lights up, glowing a bright white light for just a moment before going dark, as quickly as it had impossibly lit up. Audsall Hall is a manor house in Salford in Greater Manchester. It dates back more than 750 years but the oldest remaining parts of the current building were constructed during the 15th century. The hall was the seat of the Radcliffe family for over 300 years, until they sold it in 1662. It has since been used as a school, a radio station, a work and men's club, and today it is a period house and local history museum offering free entry. The Grade 1 listed Audsall Hall 
is considered one of the most haunted places in the northwest, coming 15th in a ranking of the region's scariest places. It really came into the public's consciousness as one of the spookiest locations in the area when it appeared on Most Haunted in 2004. The most commonly reported paranormal activity takes place in the Star Chamber, with one of the most regularly reported occurrences being the talking and laughing of small children. They are heard, but never seen. Visitors to the Star Chamber have reported drastic temperature changes, often feeling icy cold. So cold, they can see their own breath, even on the hottest summer's day. Rogue breezes and drafts that seem to have no source are also experienced. More alarmingly, some visitors have felt an overwhelming sense of oppression, as if something or someone does not want them to be there, and unless they get out, something bad may very well happen to them. This may be an unconnected reporting, but some have felt large hands on their shoulders when they know that they're in that room all alone. Other reported paranormal activity within the hall is bangs from rooms and areas of the building that are known to be empty. People reporting that they've been touched or grabbed, the sound of a lady's voice, strange whispers, and even books being thrown across rooms. There are a number of spirits that it's believed we can put a name to at the hall, one of which is the former Lord of Audsall Hall, John Radcliffe. John Radcliffe inherited Audsall Hall in 1536, at a time when it was one of the most important seats in all of England. Today John is very protective of his space, and visitors to his bedroom have felt themselves being pushed or shoved when in his room. However, it seems that he doesn't mind female visitors, as some have felt the ghostly hands of John Radcliffe all over them. The presence of a young woman who once called the hall home is indicated by the waft of fresh roses in the air. It's believed her name is Cecily. Whether she ever lived here, as there's no historical evidence whatsoever to back it up, but it's said that her fiancé left her on the day of their wedding. Heartbroken, she climbed the main staircase in almost a trance-like state, and then simply threw herself from the top, to her inevitable death in the hall below. It's unknown why, but Cecily often appears when there's a party of schoolchildren visiting the hall. Probably the best known of all of Audsall Hall ghosts is the White Lady. The Phantom is most commonly attributed to Lady Margaret Radcliffe, who committed suicide in 1599 by jumping from the balcony in the Star Chamber. This was following the death of her brother Alexander. She's seen as a woman in white, or sometimes just a candle, floating all on its own. But some accounts claim that she could be the ghost of Viviana Radcliffe, who was the lover of Guy Fawkes, and they met and fell in love when he came to Audsall Hall when the plotters met in the Star Chamber here. The Radcliffes were prominent Roman Catholics, and were well acquainted with Robert Catesby and the Catesby family. There's a street next to the hall named Guy Fawkes Street. Some have even said that the White Lady has been seen accompanied by a tall shadowy figure that appears to be wearing a long cape and a wide-brimmed hat. Could this be her beloved Guy Fawkes himself, the pair reunited in death? It is a romantic thought, but the truth is that it's almost certainly nothing more than that. In 1842, Harrison Ainsworth wrote a novel called Guy Fawkes, where he wrote the fictional meeting of Guy Fawkes and Robert Catesby in Audsall Hall Star Chamber to plan the gunpowder plot. He also created a love interest for Guy, in the shape of Viviana Radcliffe. In the novel, Guy Fawkes is supposed to have escaped capture by the King's soldiers by way of a tunnel from Audsall Hall to an inn at the cathedral end of Hanganbridge, at the northern end of the present-day Deansgate. Audsall Hall may be a very haunted building, but, despite some claims, its cast of spectral characters almost certainly does not include Guy Fawkes. The beautiful manor house in the countryside of Ashby St Ledger's in Northamptonshire, seven miles from the historic town of Rugby, has a long and significant history. In 1068, following the Norman Conquest, the Ashby Manor House, as well as another 99 manors, were gifted to Hugh de Grandes Mill by William the Conqueror. This was to reward him for his service, having been a cavalry commander in the invasion of England in 1066. In February 1098, Hugh died, and the manor house changed ownership a number of times until 1199 when the Cranford family took ownership of the property. In 1375, Emma Cranford married John de Catesby from the nearby village of Ladbroke. Over time, de Catesby would become Catesby, and the family would own the manor house until 1611. 
In around 1572, Robert Catesby was born in neighbouring Warwickshire. The Manor House website proudly states, home of the gunpowder plot, for it's claimed that in 1605 the plotters met right here, at the house owned and lived in by Robert's mother, Anne Catesby, in a room within the Manor's gatehouse, which is today called the Plot Room. It's also been written that after the failed plot, when Catesby and some of his fellow conspirators were on the run, he briefly returned here, making a fleeting visit away with his mother before riding off to Staffordshire, where he would make his last stand and die. Not only is the ghost of the chief instigator of the plot, Robert Catesby, said to have returned here following his death on the 8th of November 1605 at Holbeach House, and a shadowy form is seen throughout the building. But within the plot room, the spectral replay of the gunpowder plotters meeting, including Fawkes, has been seen here. Others who haven't actually seen the conspirators have said that they've heard men talking in hushed tones. Let's go out with a bang, pun intended, by looking at one final location that isn't said to be the haunt of Guy Fawkes, but rather one of his fellow gunpowder plotters. The confusingly named 1620s House and Garden is situated in the village of Donington Le Heath, which is near the town of Colville in Leicestershire. The manor house here was built at some point between 1288 and 1295. The early history of the house is vague, but we do know that it was owned by Charlie Priory, and then Ulvis Croft Priory, until Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries in 1536. At this point it was sold to the Digbys, who would own it until 1627. The Digbys were an important local family and owned land across Leicestershire, with their main family seat being situated at Tilton on the Hill. Sir John Digby was knighted by King Henry VIII for fighting bravely at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. In around 1620, they made a number of improvements and amendments to the house, which included a new roof and the entirety of the upstairs being remodelled, with a new staircase. During this period, the house was owned by John Digby of Seton. John was a well-known recusant Catholic, and he and his family were regularly fined and excommunicated from the Church of England. While John himself had been in prison in the Tower of London in 1586, under suspicion of involvement in the Babington plot against Elizabeth I, but escaped execution for high treason, his nephew, Sir Everard Digby, wasn't so lucky, having been one of the 13 gunpowder plotters. When John Digby died in 1627, the estate was broken up into three parts. One part including a dovecote, and presumably the house went to the Dilk family, a member of which was already living in part of the house. The Dilk family also owned Maxstoke Castle, which still contains Sir Everard Digby's dining table. From 1670 onwards, the house and estate were owned by a charitable trust, which saw many tenants come and go. By the 1960s, the house had been heavily neglected, so a farmer bought it, with the plan of repairing it and turning it into his family home. However, this plan never happened, and instead, he moved his pigs in. In 1965, Leicestershire County Council bought the building which had completely fallen into disrepair. A huge project was undertaken to save the historic house, and in 1973 the manor house was opened as a museum. In 2016 the site was refurbished as the 1620s House and Garden, telling the story of the Catholic Digbys living in Protestant England. Sadly today, the house holds only one actual artefact which is from the house when it was lived in. This is an 18th century cheese press base made of Swiftland slate. Visitors to the museum may notice scratch marks and graffiti on the stone and timber work of the windows, fireplaces and doorways of the house. This is believed to date from the Digby family's occupation of the house, and these markings were designed to protect the house and its inhabitants from evil spirits. These are known as apothropaic marks. The house has earned a reputation for many of the inhabitants of its 700 year history still lingering here in death. Cold spots are felt throughout the building, with seemingly no cause. People have claimed to be pushed, often when on the staircase, and then there are the apparitions seen all too often. These include a spectral kitchen maid, a large black dog with fire-red eyes, and the spirit of the gunpowder plotter Sir Everard Digby himself, who manifests as a tall shadowy figure donning a wide-brimmed hat. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. 
You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the many haunts of Guy Fawkes. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt, so you can hear what happened as it happened. What's more, there is a free 7-day trial to the £3 tier, so you could get access to the Halloween Patreon episode right now, which is the Golden Fleece in York, as well as all of the other special episodes, which include the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 to help the podcast out at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we're heading to Kent and to a medieval castle founded in the 11th century built upon a site that existed during Saxon times and has been described as the key to England due to its defensive significance throughout history. It's best known today for the role it played in World War II acting as a secret underground base and it was right here in the summer of 1940 where plans were drawn up to bring those British soldiers fighting at Dunkirk home safely. A headless drummer boy is seen here as has a woman dressed all in red and World War II soldiers. What's more you'll hear an absolutely terrifying story from a listener about the horror that she endured following a ghost hunt at this castle. Let's find out all about this and more, much more, next week when we head to Dover Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question How Haunted? How Haunted?